This is so strange to come to worship on Sunday morning, to look out at all the empty seats and chairs, but to know that many of you are listening uh, online, and we you know, do pray for you and pray that God would feed you this morning uh, with his word. We, uh, it does remind me of the first year we came here in the summer of 1982, and we came to church, and there were only 22 in worship. We're not doing quite that well this morning. There are five of us here, and I thank Mike and Marty, uh, Jim Ulmer, Elmer, and David Conrad, who's running the sound uh, back in the sound booth to make all of this uh, possible. Well, out of those 22, four of them were our family. Eight of them were visitors, so you can count the numbers, and Mary and I on the way home look at each other, and we, one of us said, what if we come back next week and nobody's there? 38 years later, it's almost fulfilled. <laughs> I keep looking over to the live people that are here. I'm going to get, y'all, y'all move towards the center so that when I, I can't help but look at the live faces uh, that are here. But that'll be distracting to the camera. We're looking at John chapter 7 this morning. And it's a chapter that is uh, full of, of confusion, uh, full of division in response to Jesus' claims. And in fact, in this chapter, there's an escalation of tensions. It's not such a positive chapter, but it's very pertinent to our situation. Before we head into the confusion and the division of this chapter, I'd like to read to you something that's been circulating on the internet from Martin Luther. Clear Christian thinking is timeless. Back in 1527, a deadly plague hit Martin Luther's town of Wittenberg, and he wrote a letter to a friend explaining how churches should deal with such complicated circumstances. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. In other words, do what we're responsible for believe ourselves entrusted to the will of God. And then he said, if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See this, see this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. He's referring in that last uh, phrase to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness when Satan told Jesus, throw yourself off uh, the spire of the temple because God will guard you. Hasn't he not promised that in his word? And Jesus said, you'll not tempt the Lord your God or put the Lord your God to the test. And we call you to be careful, to be cautious. Don't be foolhardy. 
follow the instructions that our authorities are, are giving us, but entrust yourself to God. Now let us pray before we turn to this passage. It's a long passage, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, first, we will work our way through it. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we go through this passage and we understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and his diagnosis on our deepest ills, I pray that we would respond with faith and trust, even as we see how the crowds responded to Jesus, and especially the leaders responded rejecting him. Let us not follow their course. Father, we pray that we give us the kind of faith and trust that we would understand that Jesus has provided more than for our physical well-being. He's opened the doors of heaven to all who put their hope and trust in him. Therefore, we will not be shaken. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first seven verses of this chapter really set the stage. I'll spend most of my time on that, and then once we establish what we're looking at, we'll kind of walk through the rest of the long chapter and see examples of Jesus' claims, the crowd's confusion, and the division in the crowd as some respond against Jesus and some respond for Jesus. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. We have to stop at this first verse because it's extremely important. In chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. They followed him around the lake, and then when they found him, he didn't feed them again. And the multitudes deserted Jesus. All they cared about was their physical well-being. And he called them to seek something far greater, far deeper, far higher than that, to care about their spiritual well-being. And we may think that that's not real, that doesn't apply. That is, that is an expression of unbelief right there, and it doesn't accord with reality. Because God is there. And he sent his son into this fallen world to do something for us that is far greater than feeding our bellies. He gives us food in his own sacrifice for us that leads to eternal life. And he calls us to seek that. So the overarching theme of these chapters, we could say, is Jesus came to go to the cross. Jesus came to go to the cross. Right now, he knows that the Jews are out to take his life. And he's not going to Jerusalem yet because his time had not yet come. He says that several times in this chapter, even when his time had come, uh, even when he went to Jerusalem, uh, he escapes the crowds because his time had not yet come. This is the middle of Jesus' ministry. At the end of his ministry, when his time had come, he comes to Jerusalem. And we are leading up in these next several weeks to Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and we usually celebrate that with joy. Jesus is king, and we praise him as king, along with the crowds. And we forget that the reason he came to Jerusalem, as he told his disciples, was to be handed over, beaten, flogged, crucified. And then on the third day, he would rise again. That's why he came in the first place. So right now, we need to remember that context, that Jesus came to go to the cross 
to pay the penalty of our sin and open the doors of heaven to all who trust in him. If we remember that, then the rest of the things in this passage will begin to make sense to us. Now, his brothers, and the, remember the multitudes were gone. The 12 stayed with him. His family was still around. His brothers were still there. And his brothers had a bright idea. They probably loved Jesus. I'm sure they did. They were for Jesus. They were excited at the miracles he could do. And they were, like the rest of the multitudes, wanting him to become a public figure and to handle all of our ills because they had seen his miracles at work. So verse 2, but when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That doesn't mean they were against him. They just didn't understand who he was. The kind of confusion that is exhibited by Jesus' brothers is not that they felt confused. The worst confusion is when you have limited knowledge and strong convictions. And you're just wrong. You're confused in that way. They saw what Jesus could do. They loved him. They wanted him to be a success. And so they said, go to Jerusalem. Try out for American Idol. We know you're going to win. But Jesus wasn't in it to become an earthly king. He wasn't out to become a public figure. Their assumption that he wanted to become a public figure was dead wrong. He wanted to be the savior of the world, but not a public figure the way they saw it. They said, when they said no one who wants to become a public figure, they betrayed their assumption. That's what they assumed Jesus wanted. That's what they assumed success would be. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. That was actually an expression of unbelief. I think there are many who praise Jesus, but praise the Jesus of their own imagination. They want Jesus to be a success, but a success for them in earthly terms. That's not real faith. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Clunk. What a hard statement. For, the, for Jesus' brothers, any time is right for him to become a success. Go show off your miracles. Become popular. Become a leader. Help us with all of our here and now problems. Any time's right for that. But Jesus came to go to the cross. He had more work to do in his ministry, more teaching to do, more preparation to do before he would go and lay down his life. He came to give his life. He wasn't caught in his life taken from him. He gave up his life for us. So he did it on his time, in his way, in his schedule. Even when he sat before Pilate, he told Pilate, you don't take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus went to Jerusalem to be crucified in his own time, and it wasn't time yet. But he did know that for those who want to be popular, that's just being worldly. The, disciple, the, the brothers were of the world. 
That's where he says the world can't hate you because you're, you're part of the world. That's a worldly mindset that you're expressing. But he said, it hates me, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. How would you react if someone came up to you and said, what you do is evil? Wouldn't you immediately go on the defensive? Maybe you'd say, well, there are certain people, the Hitlers of the world, those in the, the criminal system, the mass murderers, the serial killers, the terrorists, what you do is evil. We want to say that about others, but if somebody came and said that to you, wouldn't you react defensively? We are all sinners. The Bible tells us we're all sinners, and we have this innate sense that you don't have the right to judge me. You're not God. And so we take offense. And because the, the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews and many in the crowd did not understand that Jesus' claim was true, that he truly was God, they took offense at this. But let me set it in context. And in many ways, I'm giving away, uh, and just in case you fade on live stream and, and begin to fall asleep, those of you who are in bed, this is the point to remember. When Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. The one who's saying that is the one who came to go to the cross to pay the penalty of that evil, to pay the penalty of that sin. This is like the doctor who says, you need a heart transplant or you're going to die. And here I give you my heart and I'll pay for it all. That's outrageous. It is amazing grace that the one who would give this diagnosis is the one who would pay for it entirely by giving his life on the cross for us. It's a statement of love because conviction of sin is, it, is the acknowledgement of our need for what Jesus did for us on the cross. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name you may have eternal life. You'll never have it unless you come to the conviction that you have need for what he did on the cross. So when Jesus said, the world hates me because this is my testimony, I testify that what it does is evil. When Jesus speaks the truth to us, it is truth in love. He wants us to be convicted of our sin so that we will embrace what he does for us when he goes to the cross and pays the penalty of it. Remember that. That changes everything in this chapter. Then it makes the reaction of the, the crowds, the leaders who are reacting against Jesus, all the more absurd, all the more wrong, all the more sinful. Because they are reacting against the one who came to save. Jesus says to his brothers, now I'll just walk through the rest of the chapter. We'll see examples of Jesus' claims. First claim is that he testifies that the world, what the world does is evil. We'll see more claims of Jesus, but they all really unfold from this one. We'll see more confusion from the crowd. Sometimes it's limited knowledge and strong conviction. Sometimes it's just the division. It's like the talking heads on TV and the crowds are all trying to figure out what's going on and they're reacting and some think this and some think that and it's all confusing. We'll see division in the crowd, some for Jesus, some against him. Jesus says to his brothers, 
you go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now let me say one more thing about just the, this is an illustration from our day and time from this coronavirus. What is it that all of the uh, people on TV are saying we need more of to begin to be able to deal with this? We need more testing so that we can know who has it, who does not. An accurate diagnosis is extremely important because with an accurate diagnosis, you can begin to move to treatment. Right now, we don't have treatment for the coronavirus, but still the accurate diagnosis lets us know who should be quarantined, who should, should stay away. If we, if we know we don't have it, isn't that a great relief? This last uh, Sunday afternoon, I had to go get some prescriptions at uh, the pharmacy. And while I was there, I remembered that I was five months after my first shingles shot. Everyone who's 65 and up gets this illustration because you're supposed to have shingles shots. My brother Phil, who's three years older than I am, got shingles uh, last year. And he sent an email and said, have you gotten your shingles shot? This is bad. So I thought, I'm going to get my shingles shot. Well, I got my first one five months afterwards. And you're supposed to get your second one two to six months after your first one. And when you uh, get your, your uh, I was afraid if I didn't get my shingle shot now, what if this sweeps in and the pharmacies are overloaded with all sorts of things? I thought, I better go ahead and get my shingle shot. And I did. And they said, you might react from this one. And you might have, have uh, a, a few days. You might even get uh, some fever. They told me all of that. And Monday, I felt my arm. It didn't feel bad. I thought, great. I, ha I didn't react at all. And I dismissed it. thought, it's done. Monday night, having forgotten about that warning, I, get, I got the chills and started shaking. I took my temperature, and it was up a little bit. Not alarming, but up a little bit. And I had to tell Mary, Mary, I've got a fever. She said, oh, no. And said, I need to go to another you know, bedroom. I need, we need to, to separate. I don't, I don't want to give this to you. She said, I've got it already if you've got it. And I said, well, even so, we'll do the best we can. And so I set myself up in the uh, other bedroom and, and, and got all, all ready for bed. And, and then I turned over on my left shoulder. And, oh, my shoulder reacted. The shingle shot was reacting. And I, and I thought, it's the shingle shot. And I went back into Mary and said, I'm going to stay in the other bedroom for tonight because I'm all set up in there. But it's the shingle shot, so don't worry. See, a correct diagnosis is very important. Jesus gives us a correct diagnosis spiritually of what we need. And he paid the penalty. He paid the price. He provides the cure. Believing in him leads to eternal life. Now, now let's walk through the rest of the, the chapter. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, now at the feast, the Jews were watching out for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. You begin to see the confusion in the crowds and the division, some for him, some against him. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, 
My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. This is claim number two, and it backs up claim number one. He says, my, I testify that the world is evil, that your deeds are evil, and my word is from the one who sent me. This is the very diagnosis of God. When you, if you ignore it, if you deny it, if you defer it until the day you die and stand before him, you should know now this is his word. I'm only saying what he sent me to say, but remember the one who's saying it is the one who went to the cross to pay the penalty for it. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does, does so to gain honor for himself. Is Jesus speaking to gain honor for himself? No, he goes all the way down to the cross, to the very bottom. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Then Jesus underlines his testimony that what we do is evil. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. This is underlining his testimony. Can any of you claim to be perfect? Everyone readily admits nobody's perfect, but we use that as an excuse. It's as though God grades on a curve, and as, as long as we're not as bad as the worst person, we're okay with God. We admit nobody's perfect. Jesus says, yet not one of you keeps the law. This is his testimony, but it's from the one who came to provide the cure, to make the payment, to atone for our sin. It's an expression of love that we would be convicted of our sin. Yet not one of you keeps the law. And then he presses it further. Why are you trying to kill me? He's pointing out the attitude of their heart by rejecting what he's saying in his testimony. They are not following him to go to the cross to see the expression of God's love demonstrated for us there. They're rejecting the Savior. You say, why? Why would you reject this? It's as though you went to the doctor and the doctor said, this is what you've got and I can cure you. And you say, I don't have it. The doctor says, why are you rejecting the results of these tests? I can cure you. Jesus says, why are you trying to kill me? They don't, they don't even admit to that reaction to Jesus. They, they say, you're demon-possessed. Now, that's, that's not a compliment. The crowd answered, who's trying to kill you? We might hear it as, you're crazy. Nobody's trying to kill you, but they were. They were in denial about their rejection of Christ at this point. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all astonished. Now, Jesus had done many miracles. So what is the one miracle he's talking about? He's talking about the miracle back, at, uh, the miracle of healing the man at the pool of Bethesda when it was on a Sunday. It was on a uh, Sunday, on a Sabbath. And on that Sabbath, the leaders began to criticize Jesus. They caught him on something. He was breaking the law. He exposes their hypocrisy here. He says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision... Though it actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. 
So now he's saying, your deeds are evil, and not only that, you're judging me, and your judgment is wrong. It's hypocritical. So they're beginning to get a little more unsettled. At, th at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? See the escalation of tensions here? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? See the confusion. The authorities that were trying to kill Jesus are not, are not getting him now. They're, they are gainsayed, and so the crowd's wondering, what gives? There's a spirit of confusion here. But then they know something. They say, but we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Where do they think Jesus is from? They think he's come, come from Galilee. And they're saying no one will know where the Messiah comes from. And Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. Did you know that Jesus is capable of sarcasm? This is a really clear case of it. We ought to translate it this way. Yeah, right. You know me, and you know where I am from. You're only seeing things in the earthly terms. And I've come most recently from Galilee. They didn't even know his true history that he was from Bethlehem, from the line of Judea. We'll see that in a, a later verse. But uh, they think he's from Galilee. They're, at this point, they're saying, we know where Jesus is from. We won't know where the Messiah comes from. Jesus says, I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. This echoes his claim before that I'm not here on my own, but I, I say what he who sent me chooses to say. At this they tried to seize him. Oh, before they said, who's trying to kill you? Well, he points out more truth. Now at this they tried to seize him. But Jesus is the one in charge. No one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when Jesus comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? We can see the division in the crowd is not a negative thing here. The, by and large, the leaders and the crowd are beginning to reject Jesus. They're beginning to be upset with him. They're beginning to be angry with him. They're trying to seize him. Yet still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. What a description of the world today. The world, by and large, rejects Christ. But. Many do put their faith in him. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. The Pharisees were threatened by those who were beginning to believe in Jesus, were beginning to trust in him. They saw that as the problem, and they wanted to stop Jesus, so they sent the guards to arrest Jesus. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time. Then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They sent the guards to arrest Jesus, but he's going to that higher plane. Where, you, where I go, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews, with their limited knowledge, this is, this is that kind of confusion, had strong convictions. They said, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What a, a backhanded prophecy there. The gospel goes out to all the world. They didn't mean it that way. 
What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? They were confused, they were confounded, but uh, they were stymied. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. If the passage begins, if the chapter begins with conviction of sin, it comes at this point to an invitation to faith. Come to me. Whoever comes to me will, uh, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has, has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. This reflects back to what Jesus promised the woman at the well. John knows, because he's writing from a future point from this time after Pentecost, that Jesus meant the Holy Spirit, the verse 39, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Now notice the inconsistency here. The crowd before was saying, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. But then those who are a little more educated in the scriptures knew where the Messiah was supposed to come from. Is that he's supposed to come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? What they didn't know is that Jesus came from there. Limited knowledge strong conviction, a kind of confusion they didn't even know they had. It led to a wrong response to Jesus. Be, be careful about that. Be careful if you have strong opinions and strong convictions that lead you to dismiss Jesus because you don't know everything. You don't, your, your, your knowledge is limited, just like these were. Jesus is the truth. He did come to go to the cross. If you, if you responded earlier when Jesus said, I testify, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. If you said, that is so harsh, that is so mean, that is not a loving savior, I just dismiss him. Your, your, your view of Jesus is so limited. You're, you're forgetting that as he diagnosed that, he came to provide the cure, to provide uh, the uh, payment for such sin, to be our savior. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked him, asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. When they came to arrest Jesus, he exuded a kind of authority that they could not deal with. And they just listened. They might not have known what to think. They might not have been becoming believers in all of that. But they could not lay a hand on Jesus. His time had not yet come. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. Right there, they're wrong. We'll see that in just a minute. 
Their limited knowledge led to this strong conviction, and they're just using a kind of, of argument against the guards just to intimidate them into rejecting Jesus themselves. Has, has he deceived you too? Nobody who's educated believes this stuff. You're just clinging to religion. We'll leave out guns for now. You're just clinging to your religion. You, you, you're the ignoramuses. You don't know anything. The educated know that this, this man is false, and we need to stop him. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, these ignoramuses, there's a curse on them. They're referring to the ones who are beginning to believe in Jesus, who say no one can do these things except he come uh, from God. But that we know from John chapter 3, that's what Nicodemus told Jesus. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and he was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Now notice how reasonable Nicodemus is being. He's not uh, expressing his faith in Jesus, but you know that he must be won over. He's a follower of Christ. Later, he helps Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea uh, bring the body of Jesus down from the cross and bury him in the tomb. Nicodemus is a follower, but he's not saying to the Pharisees, you're wrong, you're wrong. I've talked with this man. Yeah, I believe in him. You should follow him. He just puts out a standard of fairness. But those who are against Jesus are not out for a standard of fairness. They turn with anger and hatred that they have for Jesus on any who would even ask for a standard of fairness. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And they make their angry stand on the false premise. Because Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem of the line of David. He is the Messiah. I pray that in response to this physical crisis, we as a culture are kind of like the crowd out in the, the wilderness and Jesus doesn't feed them bread. He's allowed this physical suffering to come upon the whole world. God is sovereign. He's not out there just messing with us. There's a mystery in that. Jim Daly is the president of Focus on the Family. This is circulating on the internet uh, too. When he talks about where is God in all this, I encourage you just to, to look up Jim Daly, D-A-L-Y, and read his full article. Since God is sovereign, he's in control of everything. He does allow suffering in this fallen world. Why? Well, at least a part of the reason is he doesn't want us to long only for the material things of this world to live and to die and then be separated, estranged from God forever. And what the Bible describes for us as hell. Jesus wants us to recognize our sin and our need of him so that we turn to him, follow him to the cross, see what he's done for us to pay the penalty of our sin and to open the doors of heaven. This is the key. When you think on that level, the, the, uh, this passage so applies to our day and time, not because we try to have kind of just parallels to the confusion in the crowds and the division, the way we are divided and confused over the coronavirus. The very claims of God that Jesus expresses here are still true. This world is sinful. We all are. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
What we need more than bread for the stomach, more than healing of this coronavirus, is the forgiveness of sin that Jesus has promised us. And do you, do you open your eyes to see that need? Because when you embrace Jesus, what happens is something transforming about here and now, about this life, about the, fa- the way we face the insecurities of this life. And there's a joy that can come for the Christian because we have a hope of eternal life and we lose our fear of death. Jim Daly referred to the 1600s, another Christian long ago who speaks volumes uh, to us today because Christian thinking is timeless. Back in the 1600s, there was a Lutheran German pastor named Martin Rinkhart. He found himself ministering in the midst of horrendous famine and disease. At one point, he was the only pastor left in his town and conducted up to 50 funerals in a single day. Yet the world may never have remembered Rinkhart if not for him writing the well-known hymn, Nundankit Alegat. Recognize that? It's otherwise known as, Now Thank We All Our God. We sing it at Thanksgiving totally unaware of the context in which it was written. He wrote it in the midst of a plague, far worse than what we're facing right now. And he wrote this, Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way, with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us, with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us, and keep us in his grace, and guide us when perplexed, and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given. The Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. If you look to Christ and demand the daily earthly material bread, and we only see the virus, we will not know this joy. But if we know the one who came, came to go to the cross, to pay the penalty of sin, that the doors of heaven would be open to us, and neither life nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, then we can know the joy that is expressed in this hymn. Jesus came to go to the cross, to pay the penalty of sin for all who put their hope and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would free us from all ills in this world and the next. We thank you that Jesus did first feed the 5,000. He showed his compassion in healing the multitudes. His desire for us was far greater, for he wanted to heal our spiritual ills and reconcile us 
to God the Father that we would be able to inherit eternal life in glory along with him. Help us in this time of earthly insecurity to find our security in our Savior who lived, who died, who rose again, and who shares that life with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.